and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one divine page of Talmud every day. And today, really, one of the pinnacles of the entirety of Tractate Psachim. Here is the portion that tells us why we're all gathered together as a family in Passover. Here is the page that tells us that we need to talk to our children. Here is the page that goes into the difficult necessities of sitting all together around a dinner table and just being a family. And to parse such a magnificent page, such a magnificent junction of the Passover story, I have the pleasure, the honor, the thrill of welcoming one of my all time favorite actresses, one of the greats of ours, or I'm going to say it, any other generation, Tova Felcher. Hello. Hello, Liel. How are you? I am so happy to talk to you. You are are known for so many things. Golda's Balcony, your one-woman show, is the longest-running show in the history of all in any theater. You were in everyone's favorite television shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and The Walking Dead. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your new book, Lilyville, which very befitting for our discussion today of families, is a hilarious, gorgeous, touching memoir that owes a lot, as the name suggests, to your mother, Lily. Tell us a little bit about her. My mother, Lily, was born on a dining room table in the Bronx at 1534 Charlotte Street in 1911. For her 12th birthday, she saw the opening of the Yankee Stadium when the Yankees beat the Red Sox 4-1 to because Babe Ruth hit a grand slam home run. And before she was 30, she lived before women's suffrage, World War I, the Spanish flu, the Roaring Twenties, the stock market crash, the Great Depression, and World War II <laughs> before she was 30. So as you can imagine, as I reel these sentences off to you, these are sentences I'm not reading from, but I have read so many times in my drafts that I can recite them like any decent actor by heart. (laughs) My mother's was extraordinary. And instead of writing a, forgive me, celebrity or whatever you'd call, a Broadway New York actor's memoir chronologically, I thought it would be more interesting to write it through the eyes of my relationship with my mother and my mother's relationship with me, because that would be the most primal connection for my readers. You know, the first job of an actor on stage is to take care of the audience to make sure that they can hear you and they can see you so when you're writing a memoir your pen has to make sure they can see the scene and that they can hear you and i thought the best way to stop the conveyor belt on lily mother daughter and other roles i've played is to explore this primal connection of all between a child and a parent, a mother and a daughter. And like any story that is deep, like any tale, it's a map across time marked with the destinations and rest stops and wrong turns and at last coming home. It's it's an ancient journey, uh, certainly as old as our people, but it's one that is worth telling. And in an era where voices like my mother, because of her birth year, were silenced, I take on her voice so that she can be heard forever. See, this is so interesting to me because something struck me very deeply. Fairly early on in the book, you you quote from a, a diary passage that your mother had written when she was a young girl saying something like, oh, I only wish I could be more vivid. And then you go on to describe this really dramatically vivid person in interaction with you. Is this where some of your flair for, for performance comes from? Well, ultimately, yes, because when she was 103 for her last birthday, which I threw for her, 
uh, with the help of my beloved older brother, Dr. David Felchu, who is also a doctor. Dr. David Felchu, a PhD, <laughs> MD. My mother calls him God. Anyway, I threw it with him at the Metropolitan Club on Fifth Avenue and 61st in New York, and she did a vaudeville act. David fed her the feed lines, you know, the way George Burns would feed Gracie Allen and gave mother her punchlines. And these were punchlines she wrote. And she got off the stage on April the 18th. I remember it was during Pesach. And she said, Tauva, I should have been an actress. You know, I'm not afraid of anything anymore. I'm not afraid of anything. And 10 weeks later, she was also not afraid of death. She left her body. But it took her a century to be, quote, for more than a century, not afraid of anything. So I do think that some of my flair came from her. But ostensibly, my father was a litigator. So when they offered me law and order, it was like <laughs> putting on an old pair of pajamas. It, you know, I remember I had a bit part. It was a man, Daniel Melnick. And they changed it to Danielle Melnick so it could be a, a woman. And Dick Wolf said to somebody after the first episode, oh, gee, she's 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 awfully good. Let's let's rehire her. And it's not that I was awfully good. It was that my father was a trial lawyer. And all <laughs> I had to do was play my father. In addition to your father being a trial lawyer, it seems that your mother also prepared you quite well for wardrobe, right? I mean, some of the early chapters in the book are hilarious about your mother's insistence that you look the part of Miss Felchu from Scarsdale. That's right, because you only have one chance to make a first impression. And we didn't come to this country, your grandparents in steerage, for us to dress like chazers. Chazers, as you know, in Yiddish means pigs. When you go out, as a matter of fact, when you go out, she said, you need to look nice. And there's that story I write about. We were on our way to the young people's concerts at the old Metropolitan Opera House on 39th Street. And I had on my, uh, we always had three coats. You had a <laughs> fall coat, a winter coat, and a spring coat. So I was in my fall coat. It was the end of fall. And uh, Leonard Bernstein was conducting the New York Philharmonic for young people to introduce us to the classics. And uh, my mother was a classical pianist. I was a classical pianist. I studied Hebrew in Hebrew school. My son, Brandon, studied Greek, Hebrew, and French and Latin at collegiate school. So we really believe in the classics. I believe if you can do the classics, you can do anything. Anyway, I'm in the car and I have on my party dress. I have on my Mary Janes. I have on my anklets with lace. I have my matching purse. I have my matching hat that goes with my fall coat and I forgot my white gloves. So I timidly said as she pulled out of the driveway and was already down Penn Boulevard, about to make a left on Weaver Street, because at that time you'd get on the Hutchinson River Parkway going south by making the left. I said, Mommy, Mommy, I, I, I forgot my white gloves. She slammed on the brakes, did a U-turn, pulled the Chrysler <laughs> right up into the driveway, turned around and said, Terry Sue, we do not go to New York without our white gloves. And I, I grabbed my wristlets. That's what they were called. They were little white gloves that stopped at the wrist that were on the kitchen counter and ran back into the Chrysler. And we made it. We made it to the concert on time. But that metaphor is interesting. She said, we don't go to New York City without our white gloves. And my father said to me when I was a little girl, Terry Sue, never beg a man for a hat. Now, never beg a man for a hat meant be independent, earn your own money so that you don't have to beg a man for anything. I thought it was very interesting. And like the Talmud and like the Torah, the way to understand these tractates is to go underneath them. 
what is the metaphor, as you would do so brilliantly, usually. And thank you for letting Lilyville be the page of Talmud that we're looking at today. I'm, I'm beyond honored. But what is the metaphor for these things? And even with all the humor in Lilyville, I, I reach out to the reader and say, all things are possible. You know, as my mother said, never give up hope. Wherever there's shit, there'll be a pony. <laughs> this was Lily. Kind of caustic, wise, tough toward the end. You know, the ability to censor yourself, like the quote I just gave you, went away. But there was always truth in what she had to say. So, you know, if I got chubby, she would say, Toby, you're fat, lose weight. And when I got thin, she'd say, Toby, you're gaunt. Would it kill you to eat a schneckin? <laughs> and when I got dressed up, she'd say, you're at Chanel. I'm still at Lowman's. What's wrong with this picture? So she was a riot, and um, it was laughter, as she said, toward the end of her life, besides two things she believed in. Remember, happiness is a choice. That was one of them. And sometimes you wake up in the morning and you don't feel happy. You have to will it. You have to get up and will it. And the other one is, I said, Mommy, how do you do it when she was 101? She said, easy, chocolate and laughter on a daily basis. And that's what she did. I absolutely love it. And yet there's there's a passage in the book that really touched me that I think reflects in your own journey that honors her so clearly and yet makes your own choices. You write, mom must have felt that her love manifested through her principle of preserve and protect my young. She also felt she showed her love through her mitzvahs or good deeds. Who carples you everywhere, witnesses your lessons, attends your sports games? These choices were supposed to communicate, of course I love you. And then you write, that message failed to get through to me for the first 25 years of my life because it was never verbally expressed. And the mind reader, I was not. That is why, to this day, if there's one thing my children and our grandchildren know, it's that I love them because they breathe. That's true. That's true, Liel. And I make it very clear. My daughter is in her 30s, as is my son now. And I call them, Brandon, I say, I say the truth. I said, my whole life changed on July 28th, 1983, because you were born. My whole life deepened and became better. And to Amanda, I call her and I say, how is the great unconflicted love of my life? <laughs> so I'm very, very clear about the love I have for my children. I, I literally still say that statement. I love you because you breathe. The other thing I do for them, which my father did for me, and I only did this for them when they were little. And they haven't called upon me to do it now. But I would put them to bed and I would say, I'm the luckiest mother in the world because I have a child that is so empathic. And Brandon would say, what empathic mama? And I said, that means to feel with people. I have a child who walks into the room, engages a room. What is wanted and needed in this room? I have a child who wants to help the other guy. So I put in them what I hoped for them. And Sydney did that with me very, very much. When I fell off my horse going out of Kentucky stables, into a pile of horse crap. I was in a white hacking jacket. It was June. I literally fell off my horse. He, he did a gentle buck and I slid off that five day to gelding like nobody's business. So my father yelled to me, Terry Sue, Terry Sue, are you okay? And I said, yes, daddy. Yes, but I'm covered in horse shit. He said, everybody is. Get back on your horse. And that was, that was the metaphor. Do you think, I mean, if acting is anything beside the obvious skill, it really is sort of, you know, the art of feeling, right? Feeling your way into character, feeling your way into scenes. Is that where it's all forged in those first early tender family years and the examples that we get from our parents, our, our ability to sort of break on through? I guess so. If you're lucky enough to have two parents, I had one parent who was ostensibly extremely supportive and another parent who was extremely dutiful and she merited an entire book. 
So when we moved from 955 Walton Avenue in the Bronx with my boisterous, extraordinary, large pre-Holocaust, our families came to America from England and Russia in 1902, from Austria and Germany in 1905. So we were spared in our immediate sense, any sense of, God forbid, loss and people being in camps in any direct blood relation to us. To make a long story short, Grandpa and Grandma, Grandma Ada and Grandpa Gershon, my son's name is Garson Brandon Levy after Gershon. Our daughter's name is Amanda Claire Levy after Ada Kaplan. Actually, Amanda now goes by the name Rizzoe because she is married to the wonderful Joel Rizzoe and Brandon is married to Jamie Kirk. They all have children, so I'm very lucky. To make a long story short, Grandma and Grandpa lived above us. We lived on the fifth floor and Johnny and Peter, my cousins, and Aunt May and Uncle Harold lived on the fourth. So at minimum, we were 10 at the table if we ever wanted to just go upstairs and get together for a meal, which we did a lot of. My first recollection is my crib being in my grandfather's vast, what was to me a vast dining room in the Bronx apartment with people screaming, pass the flambin, as if we were about to starve and go into <laughs> extinction. And then we moved to Scarsdale in this enormous house that my parents built for themselves and loved dearly. And my father was very generous to my mother. He basically gave her whatever his earnings were, and she spent it wisely. She was a very good manager of money, a very good balabosta, a very good house executive. They built this beautiful house. It was wonderful, so quiet, so lonely. I had the corner bedroom. I was always cold. There's too many windows for me because I was a thin little kid. And so I began to stand in front of the mirror and I would say to the mirror, are you real? Do you really exist? And I didn't say this. When I said this, one of my managers said, oh, that's so sad. I said, it wasn't sad. It was an inquiry. Like any good Jewish kid, if you're the age of reason is three, it was an inquiry. Are you real? Do you really exist? And this mirror image at first would keep me company like Narcissus, I guess. And when I, I then would make up little monologues to become other people to keep myself company in this vast California ranch house. And then I toured my show to the bathroom where nobody could disturb me. And when I got courage, I toured it to the living room. And I had two fans. My mother and my father would watch my little shows. And this ability to have an escape hatch from the self on a daily basis, eight times a week on Broadway for 1,000 or 1,100 people, a show was phenomenal. It still is phenomenal. My last great role was playing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do you know what a lucky duck I was to spend hours a day studying her? Hours studying a mensch, a ganze mensch. And I'm also now very interested and hope I have the opportunity to play Dr. Ruth Westheimer. And uh, <laughs> then I get to spend hours with her and her remarkable survival story. Remarkable. So it's a way of, it's a way of life. I deeply look forward to this. The book is Lilyville. Tova Felcher, you are a national treasure, and it's been such a pleasure and an honor having you on the show. It is wonderful to be on the show. I wish you a very, very brilliant, warm, and happy Pesach. And I invite all my friends to be with me on April 20th at Temple Emmanuel. The tickets are free. It's an author's night, and it'll be Tova Felchu and Lilyville Mother Daughter and other roles I've played. Hallelujah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Studios. If you enjoy this show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. I'm your host, 
Leah Leibowitz, and our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scarmuccia. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeonedafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic and we'll see you again soon.